Good evening, everybody, and welcome to today's um, class in political parties and social movements. Um, can people just advise me if they're able to hear me okay at the moment? It's good. So just have to get the cat under control. I realise I should have fed the cat before I started, so he's he's just not going to shut up until I feed him, but I'll have to go across to another building to do that. So. You'll just have to wait a bit, mate. Just settle down, settle down. Okay. Um, yeah, well, welcome, everybody. It's obviously getting darker um, now that daylight saving is past. And um, I hope everybody enjoyed their um, Easter break. Um, and looking forward to getting back into the spirit of things. A uh, couple of things. Um I think there's a problem with the recording of the class I gave at Warren Ponds. Uh, might be my fault, might be the technology's fault. I don't know. But I just gave up and re-recorded their lecture um, this morning. So in their class recordings folder, um, you'll find a recording of the lecture component, uh, me going through the um, slides of the presentation. So, yeah, um, apologies if people were looking for that uh, yesterday, but um, didn't have the occasion to work on it until um, today. Uh, obviously, I've sort of, you know, been... Um, well, this is probably more applicable to the on-campus people, but, you know, I was able to record the... Um, uh, weekly questions and hand them back to the on-campus students. And I've sort of been um, keeping up with the uh, uh, off-campus ones as well as they come in. Um, I think I'm sort of marking everybody each week, but if people think that their um, work hasn't been marked, then um, just advise me and I'll check. Um, so might sort of get started, you know, just by asking people if, You've got any general, you know, queries or issues that you would like to raise with the unit? Ray, um, has been a long week that you would like to raise with me about the unit at the moment. Ah, uh, yes, Nada, go ahead. Um, the questions are due every Tuesday. Is that correct? Um, I think every Wednesday. I might set them for Wednesday. I think it's Tuesday, I think, yeah. I think yeah, it is Tuesday. Okay. Yeah, I'll just say, yeah. All right. Yes. Just making sure. I've been doing them, but. Yes, I'm pretty sure I have, I set them that they have to be back by Tuesday. Um, anybody else got any other questions? Uh, I'll just wait until I see Mark's just joining us, so I'll just wait until he's sort of fully logged on before I continue. You can see a little thing going round and round. Uh, still going round and round. Well, still going round and round for Mark, so I'll continue. Um, yeah, so I mean, something I, I did talk about in the on-campus classes, and I'll, I think I'll, I'll put up some resources relating to this. Actually, was um, did anybody see anything about this? Um, a recent event in America that could sort of be seen as being a pretty significant defeat for. Um, a long-established social movement in the United States, one which has been trying to revive itself in recent years and put a lot of resources into this campaign, but it ended up being um, unsuccessful. Fair enough. Um, I was thinking of the... Um, there was a vote at an Amazon warehouse in a southern American state to um, set up a union. 
you know, to establish a local union, you know, that would bargain on behalf of workers with the employer. And Amazon campaigned, um, you know, fairly aggressively against the proposal to set up a union. Um, and the proposal ended up being quite soundly defeated. You know, there were about 5,000 workers eligible to vote. About half of them voted and it went down, um, by a two to one, um, margin. And, you know, obviously it's, you know, posed a lot of debate about which way forward for the American labor movement and why did it fail? You know, was it a case of a kind of free rider effect? Was it because Amazon actually pays fairly well, apparently, compared to local wages down there and so on. Um, and actually sort of um, found out that Amazon actually um, had a website that they were using to campaign against the union, as you say, Luke, definitely. Um, I'll just show a couple, of, um, a few screenshots from this website, which had disappeared by the time I looked, but I found out, you know, somebody had posted some shots from it. So just give me a moment and I'll show you a couple of these, which are sort of interesting, I think, maybe in terms of the other kind of discussions we've had about the free rider effect and so on. So where are we? Just waiting for this to come up. I must admit, I try to avoid buying books from Amazon, but sometimes you'll have to do so. Um, right, my home. September 21. So this was, um, are people able to see this, um, image of, um, uh, the Corgi with a record player. <laughs> yes. Um, so the Amazon campaign very much focused on, what was it? Be a doer, not a doer. So be a doer, be part of the Amazon team rather than somebody paying dues to the union. And obviously somebody had, um, defaced this image out of general annoyance. Um, but this is the, um, uh, only image I could find. For some reason, Google won't let you, Dog Deacon won't let you access, um, Google Cache, um, for some reason. But I did find these images here. So, you know, don't buy that dinner. Don't buy these school supplies, et cetera, et cetera. Because you won't have that almost $500 you paid in dues. Why not save the money and get the books, gifts and things that you want? So that was part of the, um, anti-union campaign pointing to costs, uh, which was interesting, I thought. Uh, another part was... So I think this is the one about the sort of workforce team. I'll just try sharing that again. I pressed the wrong thing here. Just give it a moment. So another, you know, theme in the Amazon campaign was to argue that, um, paying dues would be restrictive, um, that it would sort of mean that it wouldn't easy, it would somehow make the workplace a less friendly, um, happy team sharing place and so on. So they're sort of interesting, I think, these arguments, um, that were made, you know, and, 
there seems to be a lot of angst in the union movement you know, about you know, was the campaign doomed to fail? Was it too ambitious at this stage and so on? Does it maybe show um, that you know, it's very difficult to unionise a great big workplace just starting in one spot? Maybe you need sort of a more comprehensive and ongoing campaign. Because it really does seem that when union membership grows, it very much grows as part of a broader social movement, you know, a general climate of protest and activism and so on seems to spill over into union membership and growth. Um, and, you know, one example of that, and I'll just sort of finish with this image, if I can bring it up. Finding this. This is waiting to convert, so just give it a moment. They were paying lots of money, yes. Um, there, there are these well-established anti-union consultants in the United States. Um, it's big business um, opposing union membership. Um, and, you know, obviously there are reasons um, why this happens. Um, apologies for this being on its side. Um, I, I presume there's a way of turning it, but I can't quite manage at the moment. But if you sort of tilt your head to the side, um, this is actually a chart of union membership in the United States um, from the 1880s um, up until the 1990s. And it's interesting, really, that if you look at the pattern, you can sort of see a kind of upward trend over time as unions became more organised. But the really significant increase is in the um, latter 1930s and also in World War II. And in that period, perhaps unions were, particularly in the 1930s, unions were able to identify as part of a broader social movement, you know, the New Deal um, and so on and perhaps wave that, ride that wave of enthusiasm. And they pursued sort of novel repertoires of a contention, for example, such as sit-down strikes where workers occupied factories. And then, of course, once World War II started, they were really able to lever their position effectively to get government support and encouragement in the interests of keeping war production going and so on. Um, so you might say the conclusion of this chart maybe is that if you want to revitalise American unions, um, maybe Biden should actually declare war on China because um, uh, fighting large-scale wars actually seems to be good for union membership in the United States. And, and you could see a bit of that in the, in the First World War as well. But, yeah, it's an interesting case. I'll put up some, you know, extracts from some of the debate, um, you know, some of the articles about it. Um, I'll put some of those up on the cloud site. Um, just got to get the cat off my notes. Come on, big fella, settle down, settle down. Um, so what the topic for this week focused on is, you know, on this idea of political opportunity structures. You know, and in a way, you know, the debate about this Amazon vote you know, is perhaps an example of some of that, you know, because obviously the kind of legislative structures that were put in place potentially make it difficult to increase union membership. You know, you have to win individual single member ballots that are, you know, conducted over a lengthy period that give a lot of scope for employers to campaign and mobilise people against the union and so on. It's different perhaps from, um, you know, what's existed in other environments, you know, where perhaps you could just go into a workforce, sign up people directly, lever up your position from that. So the argument behind this concept of political opportunity structure is that Social movements are very much shaped by the political environment in which they operate. And that's not just the kind of formal structure of politics, although that's important, you know, the parties, how many levels of government there are and so on. It's also potentially the norms and values and culture that underlines the political system. 
You know, so if you've got a fairly stable consensual political system, that can make it difficult for social movements to break through. You know, if most voters seem to be content with the existing political parties and with the status quo, how do you get yourself known? How do you have an impact? You know, what sort of potentially it might drive you to more, it's more disruptive strategies. Um, and of course as well, what social movements do can also shape the opportunity structure as well. So when unions have been successful, they've been able to obtain reforms to the legislative structure that makes it easy to form unions. So union membership started to grow in America in the early 30s. Unions were successful in having federal labour law passed that made it easier for workers to organise. This contributed towards increased levels at union formation. Now, and one reason maybe why union membership sort of peaks in the United States in the late 40s is that by that stage there's a backlash which leads to legislation being amended in ways that actually make it a lot more difficult to extend union membership outside of um, the sectors in which it all in which it already had a base. So the political environment matters for the success of social movements for what they're able to achieve. Now the sort of discussion questions for then um, touch on that. And the first one is asking um, under what circumstances could state repression facilitate social movement activity? So when potentially could state repression actually be beneficial towards the social movement? Any ideas about the circumstances in which that might be the case? Yeah, well, I think that's definitely true, Mark, that um, you know, social movements are a response to you know, people's experience of oppression and exploitation and repression can inspire and mobilise social movement activity um, in certain circumstances. Would the rest of you sort of agree with what Mark had to say there? So that, I mean, that's an interesting point there, Luke. I mean, I mean, how, I mean, could you tease out maybe a bit more what you're sort of suggesting by instability within the state? One thought that you know I would have in that context is that, yeah, I think that's true. That you know, states can be divided about how to respond, um, and you know the resort to repression isn't necessarily a sign of the strength potentially of a state. I mean, it could be a sign of its weakness as well. Um, and I mean, I think I made this point in the lecture actually that if you look say social movements in the later sixties, you know for example that that the student and protest movements that the fact that state agencies 
tended to be more repressive directly, say, in countries like France or Italy, you know, where the police um, was very much militarised, or the United States, you know, where there's this long history of police violence and where you had agencies like the National Guard and so on, that that, that encouraged a process of radicalisation among protesters. Um, in a way, it gave them something to focus on, you know, rather than talking about abstractions of the state or overthrowing capitalism, you know, it actually posed a direct enemy that people felt that they could confront and mobilised people. Yes, Nada, go ahead. I heard a theory that uh, one of the reasons for the uprising was um, education and uh, open education and university systems that was like free and everybody were uh, more educated and they thought about the systems and uh, the contradictions of, um, you know, what it is to be a citizen and all that. Uh, And then that kind of gave uh, the rise of the student movement. Um, and I heard a theory, I forgot who it was and where I read it, but, uh, it went something like, uh, the, uh, U.S., in U.S. context, they, uh, part of the reason why they made education, um, more difficult to kind of attain, I guess, is, uh, is to suppress an uprising. Well, yeah, I mean, that massive increase in student numbers in the 1960s um, was quite significant as one of the drivers of student activism during this period and institutions to a degree that struggled to respond to a much larger population. I mean, I think the French system in particular, very hierarchical, massively centralised and so on. respond in that kind of direction. So, yeah, the rise of students as this distinct cohort was a, a really significant thing and it encouraged a lot of theorising about, well, what was the position that students going to be in society? Um, students reacting against the idea you know, that when they graduated, they were just going to become cogs in this um, you know, commercial, um, credential-based um, aspirational society and so on. Um, now, and even just, you know, the fact of bringing together large numbers of people, um, large numbers of young people together um, was quite symptomatic, I think, there in particular. Um, yeah, so, Nana, go on, yes. Oh, and sorry, Mark, was, yeah. uh, Mark, please, I, w- I just had my hands up. I don't know why. Yeah, what. like, just <laughs> what we were saying before, it's kind of like if you violently repress people to the point that their daily lives are so shit that they don't even fear the pushback that their social movement will, you know, the violence that they'll get for protesting. So, like, a reason that people wouldn't protest is because they don't want to get hurt or they don't want to get shot. But if you repress them so much that they're not even worried about that anymore, that they're going to do it anyway because that's what the repression has done to them. Yeah, well, it, it changes that calculation of um, individual interest, I think. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Nada, do you want to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to add to that, um, that it's it's always been that they've uh, replaced certain group of people and then made sure that uh, a portion of the middle class or upper middle class are... Uh, somehow taken care of so then then the uh, uprising doesn't happen well yeah i mean patterns of state repression can often be quite selective you know in terms of trying to divide the population um there you know i think that's been a process that you know Governments, I suppose, can take various different responses to social movement activity. You know, they can then try to engage with them. They, they can try to repress them. You know, they can try to manage and manipulate them. Um, yeah, but there's certainly, I think, been cases of, you know, trying to pursue policies of um, divide and rule there. Um, and I suppose, too, actually, uh, one point I, I think for which there's also evidence is that the memory of repression can be significant. So certainly extreme repression, you know, can sometimes potentially destroy the basis for any form of collective action. 
But in that situation, if repressive governments start to liberalise, then the memory of that past oppression can actually become a powerful mobilising force. You know, I think um, Alexander de Tocqueville, who was a 19th century French um, politician, but really one of the founders of modern sociology, you know, once said, well, the, the most dangerous moment for a bad government is when that government tries to reform. Because people start to imagine that something is possible, limited amounts of space open up and so on. And, um, you know, that can potentially snowball quite quickly in a process of radicalization. So yeah, in terms of the question, yeah, and answer the question, yeah, well, you might think that repression would just kill off a social movement because, you know, states are terrifyingly powerful and domineering forces. But in some circumstances, it can actually facilitate, um, forms of social movement activity. Um, so the second question then, now he's also looking at this question of opportunity structures and so on. Um, and the second question is, why might stable political alignments hamper social movements? What strategies might they pursue in response? So why might having, you know, a very stable, you know, coherent political system, why might that actually be bad for the, from the viewpoint of social movement activity? Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely true, Luke, that, um, social movements are disruptive. You know, they're trying to mobilize people around discontent with the status quo. You know, and I thought that, um, you know, screenshot I showed earlier from the Amazon anti-union campaign, you know, presenting the idea that the workforce was a kind of happy family and that the, um, you know, the union would somehow be a disruptive force and break up that family maybe is appealing to that. Um, it's difficult, I think, for movements to gain a foothold when there's that degree of political stability. You know, go ahead, Nada. Is that one of the main reasons why um, Australia doesn't have kind of a big uprising? Is like the government takes care of its people more or less in comparison, at least to other places? I think there are those elements of, I mean, reasonably high levels of trust in the Australian state. I mean, I know respect for politicians has gone down and down. Yeah. But there is an argument that traditionally Australians have tended to be fairly respectful of, even fairly deferential towards government. And you know, even if you look at the party system, I mean, populist people's feelings of attachment towards political parties have gone down a lot. But by international standards, Australians are still surprisingly loyal to political parties, you know, and still prone to vote in fairly set ways. So the sort of system phrase, but it, it, you know, it hasn't ended upon a kind of crisis of legitimacy um, akin to what we've seen elsewhere, I think. I mean, we can see that somewhat in, in the um, coronavirus uh, response as well in comparison to many places. I think Australia has taken care of its people, even though, of course, it's not, you know, it wasn't perfect. <laughs> any stretch of the imagination <laughs> yeah 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 it's interesting that um i write something like that one day yeah and, and the whole kind of yeah this argument that is you know that australia has this kind of sort of utilitarian culture that um you know there aren't sort of the kind of traditions you see elsewhere from either the left or right of radical skepticism about the state you know, so in America, you know, there's that history of, you know, gun rights, individualism and so on. You know, and in Europe, you know, there might be histories of mass popular movements challenging the state. Um, you, you see that in Australia a lot less. And, and there is some sort of survey evidence to support that in terms of levels of trust and authority and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it sort of makes it hard for movements to break into um, and make their name known. So... Same movements face that env that environment. Yeah, what sort of strategies might they pursue in response, potentially? 
if the political order seems to be very stable. Mark, go ahead. Um, they might think that maybe the smarter approach for them is just to get involved personally in the electoral politics and actually mm. produce the legislation themselves instead of trying to put the pressure on from the outside. They might just think the inner route is better. Yeah, I think, you know, I think you can see evidence of that in the United States, for example, uh, where the existence of a very strong two-party system where it seems almost impossible to challenge. It sort of meant that challenges to the status quo in the United States have tended to, how can I put it, you know, accommodate themselves to political parties. Um, you know, so, you know, the inheritors of 60s social movements ended up identifying with the Democrats um, and perhaps losing a lot of their radical edge along the way. Um, same on the other side as well. Nada, go ahead. Uh, that's not really true. I think that in U.S., the, a lot of the radical movements has been killed or jailed off or otherwise, you know, completely annihilated is uh, what happened to the U.S. radical movements. But uh, it keeps kind of coming back. <laughs> so well, it's not killed yeah. off entirely. But, um, we'll but it's not that they yeah. just... Yeah, it's not it's not that they just went to Dem Democrats and whatever. It, it's that, you know, Mumia is still in jail. And <laughs> unless you're, you know, Angela Davis and really sell out, you know, um, uh, yeah, you, you get you get punished severely. Well, those patterns of state. Yeah, I mean, a, a sort of combination, I suppose, of state repression and co-option as well. Um, but uh, you know, it, it's interesting, I suppose, in the American case, you know, that on the other side of politics, you know, conservative social movements, you know, one of the explanations, I think, for the rise of Trump was a belief among a lot of sort of conservative social movement activists, well, in a sense that they had been co-opted. You know, the Christian right had moved into the Republican Party, but what are the Republic, you know, America was still going to hell in their perspective. You know, you needed to try something more radical and drastic and throwing their support behind Trump was sort of seen as being part of that strategy. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's. So I do think it, it, it poses that kind of question there, you know, about how to respond to a stable system. Um, so you might try to work within the system, but what other options might you pursue if you think that the system seems to be stable seems to be sort of completely excluding any possibility of a um, social movement challenge what road potentially might you go down then in response to that i think your cat has to answer uh what was that sorry about oh yes uh, uh, sit down yes sit down big fella yeah okay um well, more disruptive ones. Well, actually, yeah. I mean, Luke said there, I mean, you could take those sort of long-term approach, as, as Mark suggests there. Um, but, I mean, one reason, for example, for the rise of forms of terrorism um, in both the United States and some European countries from the early 70s was driven by kind of frustration among movement activists, you know, that the political system seemed to be closed entirely and that there seemed to be no way forward into to change, to challenge the status quo. Plus, of course, you know, a fair degree of state repression. So that was a factor there. Yes. Nada, go ahead. Uh, a lot of the radical movements nowadays, I see they're making a lot of, educational stuff to build their own movement hmm. uh, because yeah i think that's one of the strategies that they employ instead of you know um just supporting the democrats or whatever like you said um they're educating people about why they should movement building yeah yeah focusing on strengthening and building the movement um and you know, that could, I suppose, almost sometimes shade into saying, well, in, 
in the sense, let's opt out. You know, let's not try to engage with the state. You know, let's try to establish and defend our own ways of life in a kind of autonomy and rejection of the status quo. So, yeah, I mean, I think there are sort of lots of different ways, responses people can take towards that problem of a strong political structure, you know, one that sort of seems to be resistant towards the impacts of social movements. And it can sort of point you in a very conciliatory, you know, work within the system direction and maybe end up being co-opted by the system. It could potentially also push people towards the road of a much more violent and confrontational challenge to the system. Um, I mean, I was reading actually a book about um, the Russian revolutionary movement in the 19th century, in the latter 19th century. And, you know, they faced an incredibly repressive government and they went down the road of individual terrorism. You know, they said, you know, if only we can assassinate government figures, you know, this is going to bring about the revolution. And they put enormous energy into working out how to assassinate the Tsar, the Russian monarch. Finally, they succeeded in doing so. And they were thrilled and excited. They'd, you know, they'd killed the Tsar and absolutely nothing changed because the social order continued um, after that. But they were pushed towards, you know, you could see the appeal of terrorism because it seemed to be something they could do. You know, the masses seemed to be quiescent. There was a famous episode where, you know, young radical activists went out to talk to the peasants and try to convert the peasants to the revolutionary cause. And the peasants said, who are you strange weirdos coming in from the cities and just handed them back to the government? Um, so, yeah, I was, it's an interesting story, I think. Yeah, peace, bread and I think peace, bread and land was the Lenin slogan, I think. But there's this whole and eventually, actually, activists worked out the way to engage with popular demands and talk the language of the people, you know, the language that the peasants wanted land and so on. But it took them a long time to work out the formula. And initially, they were very unsuccessful in doing so um, in building a movement beyond narrowly intellectual groups. Um, so there, I think, some sort of options, you know, some sort of th things that I, I thought about in terms of the answer to the question, too. Um, I think we've picked up some extra members. So welcome, Kirsty. Um, we're just sort of working our way through the um, quiz questions at the moment, and we've, we've just sort of been talking about question two. Um, and finally, question three. Um, oh, good. I saw WOR and I thought, have, have you been fighting somewhere in the war or something? So, yeah. Um, but anyway, the earlier content of the class is going to be recorded. Yeah, it will be available there. Um, so question three focuses on this issue of using litigation in individual cases. Now, of course, social movements have often thought, well, what we need to do is to you know, fight our cases in the courts, you know, to appeal to legislation, human rights norms and so on and very much focus on individuals, you know, because to, mostly you have to do that in court. Uh, you have to argue cases about the rights of individual people. Um, what could be some of the benefits or potentially some of the dangers of really putting all of your eggs in the kind of basket of um, litigating individual cases? Yeah, well, that, I think that's definitely a danger there. Um, would other participants sort of agree with what Luke is um, suggesting there? And, and, and I'd add too, actually, that's, you know, you can't just walk into the high court and say, I'm annoyed about something. I think there should be a legal decision. You know, it, it can actually be quite difficult to establish, um, standing as the lawyers call it. Um, 
and for organised groups to become involved in the process at all. Um, yeah, having that kind of legitimacy. But yeah, I mean, as Luke says, you know, it can also be a good mobilising thing for people. You know, the figure at the individual case, one person is very powerful. Yes, Mark, go ahead. Um, I was just thinking of like maybe a potential pro is that like say maybe most social movements tend to grab you know maybe left leaning people first and then kind of mm. other people have to be brought into it from the center when you use the the idea of litigation and the rule of law if you can make the claim that you know this human rights abuse or whatever it is you're protesting etc is breaking a law um mm. then you might be able to get people on your side who generally don't really care about human rights, but once that once it's framed through, oh, we're break they're breaking the law. You you might get more sympathy on your side. Yeah, I think that's what people often think. You know, and they think you know, I these kind of arguments I think could potentially have that. Uh, yeah, mobilising impact. You know, it's a kind of framing process. You know, to go back to what we talked about. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago. You frame your claims in a particular way and, you know, relating them to ideas of the Constitution, for example, and so on in the United States um, can actually be quite a powerful and effective tool. Um, Mark, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I already did. Sorry, I just forgot to turn it off. No problem. Yep. Still going to hang back. Nada, were you going to say something? Oh yeah, I have to intervene here and and yes. uh, say the same thing over and over again. Which is just it's inevitably, you know, you can repeat after me too. <laughs> um, inevitably, yeah. it will leave uh, people out uh, in the very legitimate um, kind of route that uh, uses these type of techniques uh, because yeah. you're gonna have to. Uh, negotiate with the state. You're going to have to negotiate with politicians. Politicians suck. They have horrible politics. That's why they're politicians. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And you're going to, uh, yeah, leave vulnerable people out of the rights that you're trying to, to advocate for inevitably. So what do you do? Well, there are, yeah, strong arguments against it. Um, I think one of the optional readings um, I had was sort of the introduction to this book. It's getting a bit dark in here, but I'll wave it up in front of me. The um, yeah, the sort of edited by Wendy Brown from about 20 years ago, which is a kind of criticism of using the law as a kind of vehicle to attain progressive social movement goals. Um, that's quite interesting. Um, uh, who was the author? Wendy Brown. It's called Left Legalism, Left Critique. So it's got, you know, chapters on rights, uh, concepts of scepticism about gay marriage, um, the evocation of the idea of individual pain and suffering and whether or not that is sort of an empowering or a demobilising force. So it's got that kind of... I think critical legal studies, I think the Americans call it sort of orientation and focus, which is interesting. But yeah, so there are these sort of different arguments, both pro and con about the use of that. Well, Jesse, yeah, that's an interesting point actually about the open rescue thing, because the open rescue people, I think, you know, kept on finding out that, you know, they'd secure kind of apparent legal victories. You know, they'd, they'd come up in front of a sympathetic magistrate, but that didn't last very long once things progressed on appeal. And I know in in native title law in particular, there's sometimes been a bit of a pattern of, you know, you're lucky to end up with a single sympathetic judge and then it's appealed and it's knocked over. I mean, I remember about 15 or so years, 10, 15 years or so ago, there was a big native title claim in Perth that actually was granted by a single judge of the federal court and knocked over on appeal um, fairly comprehensively. So, yeah, this can be one of the problems, that it's a conservatising technique. On the other hand, 
it can potentially change public opinion. Um, actually, I think, you know, I think, Mark, I think, you know, that point you make there about legitimating your stance through the law, well, it's interesting that if you look, say, at the same-sex marriage debate, it's seen that legal decisions drove public opinion, that having courts making finding, you know, making rulings in favour of same-sex marriage, people seem to take that as approval and seem to become more likely to support it. That there wasn't really evidence of a backlash. You know, there is a theory um, that because legal decisions are perhaps seen as being undemocratic, you know, it's unelected judges making these decisions, they can generate a backlash. Doesn't seem to be that much evidence for it, um, but yeah, there is a, there is a literature sort of that debates this kind of question. Nada, go ahead. I'm curious to see uh, if there's any differences on an international level um, in terms of um, how they do their social movements, <laughs> mm. you know, because it's, it, it's probably uh, a really different, right, than how U.S. or France would do it. Well, it, I think it does actually vary a lot, you know, in legal systems vary a lot in terms of their openness, you know, common law systems such as in say Australia and the US are potentially more open than the European systems where, where the law tends to be much more legal, you know, the legal apparatus is more closely aligned with the government, you know, the law plays a more administrative and managerial role. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's there and social movements are always pulled towards it. Um, and of course, I suppose the other problem is, I mean, if you win one victory, then um, government can just change the law. And that's very much been the case, for example, in the case of asylum seeker campaigns. You know, there have been times when victories have been won and governments have then rushed to um, uh, change the law. Nada, were you putting up your hand? Oh, no, I, I wasn't. But I was also wondering, like, in terms of, like, for instance, South Africa, like, how do they do it? <laughs> um, well, there wasn't really much. I mean, I, I think this, you know, under the apartheid years, I think the legal system was very closely incorporated into the white power structure. And, you know, there were never any obstacles to the government amending or changing the law. So, um, I mean, I'm not an expert on the South African position, but I think my understanding is really that they were quite uns mostly fairly unsuccessful in doing so. You know, there were the treason trials in the, you know, 60s that led to the imprisonment of Mandela and so on. Um and that there never seemed too much of an opportunity for trying to use legal means to undermine the apartheid state. And South Africa has a tradition of a fairly centralised, top-down model of government. Um, it still does, you know, even under majority rule, and it did under white rule as well. But, yeah, that's – it would be interesting to look at more of an international comparison because, yeah, it's uh, – the literature I'm familiar with is very sort of American – and, yeah. and doesn't really look that much at how it's worked in other countries. Um, I have ordered an interesting book I saw that's ju just been published about Christian conservatives in Britain and about how they have tried to use litigation to advance their goals and how they've been fairly unsuccessful in doing that. You know, but how oh. they looked across to America and thought, well, we can use litigation and it hasn't really worked for them. So. Maybe more for next year on that topic. There's a, a podcast about, um, oh, which one was it? Uh, gay and lesbian rights and how uh, U.S. overturned the sodomy laws. It was really, really interesting about how the uh, movement went about using the litigation system to do that. Of course, they, they had to make a couple of attempts at that, I think. It yeah. Was a, it was a real struggle because... 
there were those sort of series of landmark cases. That's that's always been the pattern in America. I mean, um, it, well, what the what the hilarious part was, or well, it's not hilarious, but it's really interesting how they did it. It's like it's almost a fake case. Like it's not, it wasn't like completely unwilling kind of gay people that have nothing to don't want to be part of this you know mm. movement at all or not even interested but somehow got sucked into it and <laughs> uh yeah. yeah well yeah i mean there was the tasmanian you know case where uh you know the um i think rodney crewman whoever else you know turned up to the police and said well we've committed sodomy you should arrest us and the police said yeah. go away we really don't want to do anything about this but that's they wanted right. to be arrested so they could make a complaint to the united nations uh, yeah that's exactly and, how it was and then the UN actually, the UN Rights Commission made a finding that was then, I think, used by the Keating government, I think, to legislate on those grounds. But I think the Tasmanian government then acted before federal legislation was put through or something. Yeah, it was an interesting story. Yeah, because the kind of political structure can change. So social movement activists can try to move up from the local to the international and and try to draw on that but that can be a difficult and complex procedure okay well we're probably coming up to close to the end of the hour i think uh looks like it um anybody got any other sort of um queries or comments they'd like to raise about uh this week's topic Oh, what is this? Doing so much action can do. It's a balancing act. Yeah. On the essay assessment, good point, um, Nathan. Um, I should talk more about the essay in a more organised manner. I'll. It's coming up. It is obviously due at the end of the semester. Uh, you should have the questions. Uh, they should be in the assessments folder on the cloud site. Just hang on a moment and I'll just take a look and make sure they're there. Uh, where are we? Ooh, content. In the assessment folder, uh, yeah, which you can access from the front page. On the left-hand side, there's a list of areas. Um, there's a folder labelled assessment. Um, and the first document in there is 2021 essay. Have people been able to find that? Okay, uh, just me. Just let me take a look at it, just to remind me of what I've got here. Yeah, so the essay, it's a 2,000 word essay. Um, I should probably have said on the thing actually that it's 2,000 words. Um, it's due on the, and uh, when's it due on the 28th of May. So it's 2,000 words due on the 28th of May. But I should have said it's it is two thousand words due on the twenty eighth of May. Um, I'll put up a note actually just to indicate it is two thousand words. Apologies for that. Uh, any type of referencing is okay so long as you're consistent. Um, number of sources. It's eighteenth of June. Sorry, thank you. Is okay. Uh, 28th of May. Is the, is 28th of May the, oh, the quiz. Okay. What are we looking at? Sorry. Uh, I hope I'm not confusing people. Assessment I'm task two is a due 28th of May. Yeah. Two. Yeah. Oh, I just put the yeah. quiz on the wrong one. Okay. Yeah. It yeah. is the second item of assessment. There's sort of Ongoing weekly questions are one. Um, okay. Number of references, people always ask me that. 
Um, I'll think about it and I'll put something up on the cloud site um, with some suggestions there. So I'll just make a note to do that. So I'll, that's something I'll do this weekend. But, yeah, it is 2,000 words. Um, I will definitely make a note of that and re-emphasise that. Anybody else got any other queries to raise about the unit at this stage? Yes, Nada, go ahead. No, I just I just wanted to add that, like, just to emphasize working with like the legal uh, system really significantly changes the whole of the social movements. And I don't know, working with NGOs as well um, to really like kind of understand what that is, because I've seen posts from like Deacon too about like helping refugees and stuff, and it's all NGO related mm. and connected and um it's a bit um problematic and <laughs> well you know yeah, and people people don't people don't think about it enough i don't think and students don't aren't taught to think about it well there's that um, yeah process of ngoization and you know are they part right. of a social movement or not and so on yeah, well, so. not only that, there's a significant kind of conflict between refugees and the refugee organizations and NGOs uh, that are not run by uh, refugees. And they, uh, yeah, they, there's a very problematic relationship there and um, in connection with the government, too. I mean, they're receiving money from the government. And we're talking about people who are being abused by the government. And so, you know, you have to kind of do the math here before you think it's okay to just really nearly you know do things with the NGO and think that's a, actually a human rights thing you know that's good for the refugees it's often not well this is a yeah reflects a long-standing debate that yeah goes back a long period but definitely something to think about and then I'll give more coverage to in future years I think and so on uh, Jesse, were you asking a question? Any more questions, Jesse? Did you want to ask one or press the button accidentally? Okay, well, we're coming up to, it is six o'clock, so I'll close up things here. So thanks everybody for your attendance and I'll, yeah, look, communicate with you again next week when it's down to political parties, those often hated things. So it's good evening from me and good evening from my cat, who's now moved away and is sitting somewhere else. Uh,